0: Turn with me to Matthew 27. Matthew 27:27 27, 27. Before we pray and read this passage I want us to try to get our get our hearts focused on what we're about to consider. by by listening to just a couple of scriptures about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now Isaiah, God himself says, lift up your eyes. He says, look at the stars. Who created those? Who created those? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is ever missing. In heaven, we get this glimpse of these marvelous creatures. Six wings, eyes all around. And day and night, they never cease crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And they spit on it. That's what, it, that's what it says in this passage we're about to read. They spit on him. I, don't, I want that to jar you the way that it should. In Christ, the Bible tells us that the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and they spit on it. He is the image of the invisible God and they spit on Him. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word became flesh and they spit on Him. spit in his face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I have to request that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would move our hearts that you would soften our calloused hearts that you would stir our emotions and our affections for Christ. I plead with you not to let anyone here leave unaffected by what happened on that day. And I ask that you would show us your glory. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear of your glory in the face of Christ. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we read Matthew 27, I want you to pay attention to all the gory, bloody details in this passage. Because there aren't any. It says they scourged him. It says they crucified him. But that's it. There's no nails here. There's no spear. There's no mention of blood at all. Anywhere in here. And so I won't... You, I won't let Matthew's account of the cross surprise you. His focus is not on... The physical suffering, but the shame. The shame of the cross. And that's exactly what we're going to focus on today. The shame and the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And So let's read Matthew 27, verses 27 through 44. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, And they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail King of the Jews. And they spit on him. They took the reed, and they struck him in the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him again. They stripped him of the robe and and put his own clothes on him, and he led him away to be crucified. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. They put over his head the the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers, even who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. Now, notice the moment that we've come preaching through Matthew, look at the, the, the end of verse 26, the setup here. It says, having scourged Jesus, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. This is where we are. This is, without exception, the most important moment in history. The crucifixion of the Son of God. Jesus is about to be executed by the Roman government by much arm twisting of the religious establishment. And what would that be like? What would it be like to face your own public execution? I want you to think about that. How humiliating would it be for you to have to kneel down in front of this big crowd and put your own neck in the guillotine? Or to stand there on the gallows as everybody watches you as they tighten that noose around your neck. How shameful would that be? Knowing what what all the people are thinking about you and what they're they're saying about you and what they're about to see happen to you, how shameful would that be? And as horrible as that would be, it would be quick. It would only last for a minute. Not with the cross. There's a real good reason why Paul says in Philippians 2, Being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Why do you think he says it like that? Because man, when it comes to the intentional public humiliation of another human being, nothing rivals the cross. Crucifixion is a man-made instrument of ultimate humiliation. If you sat down with your depraved mind and, and tried to invent some form of punishment from scratch that would inflict as much pain and as much humiliation as possible, you'd probably come up with something like crucifixion. One early church leader who's very familiar with crucifixion said, It is the most shameful death known to men. And we need to get our mind right on that. Man, I think it's so easy for us to grow numb to the severity and the humiliation of the cross. The cross was not cool. It was horrific. You think of this, like, can you imagine in Jesus' day somebody wearing a cross necklace? Or going to somebody's house and they got crosses hanging on the wall everywhere? Man, what are you, a sicko? You sick? It's disgusting. Think about why crucifixion would be so humiliating. First of all, like like I said, it's it's a public execution. And I want you to know what that means. That means that everybody in society, in a sense, all of them agree that the world would be a better place without you. You need to be destroyed. This is the scum of the earth away. And this is magnified by crucifixion because it was reserved only for the lowest in society. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified without Caesar himself writing something. And so, man, if you're hanging on a cross, you're worse than the scum of the earth. And you're literally on display. Stripped naked, high and lifted up, so everybody can see. And what are they there to see? What are they there to watch? They're there to watch you die. This is what crucifixion does it makes your your death a spectacle. Death is not pretty, death is not glorious especially those last moments. Can you imagine how humiliating it would be for a big crowd to stand around and just watch you die? And crucifixion is designed to drag that out as a display. All the fear and the struggling that comes with death, it's it's on display. And you're watching them as they watch you die for hours. You're actually there and you're making eye contact with people. People who hate you. You hear what they're saying. You hang there helpless and hopeless and worthless as your family watches it. Man, the pain is only half of it. The shame would have to be unbearable. This is what Jesus is facing times a thousand. This extraordinary, excruciating shame of the cross, but it's even worse because he's, he's a Jew. And he knows the crucifixion is this God-ordained symbol of the curse of God. According to the law in Deuteronomy 21, if you're hung on a tree, not only are you a blight on society, but you are cursed by God. You're, you're a defilement. To the land. Get this this guy out of here. And the reason you're there, the reason you're hanging there is because God put you there. You're despised and accursed by God himself. That's the ultimate shame. Not only is society banishing you from the community, but God says this one needs to be banished from creation This is the shame of crucifixion. And if nothing else happened, if nothing else happened other than this ordinary public humiliation, public despisement, public forsakenness by God and dying a slow death for all to see, that would be one thing. Christ experienced all of that, but so much more. There's so much humiliation intentionally poured out on Jesus Christ. It's unmatched. unlike any crucifixion before or since. And I want us to see that. When you see the shame of this humiliation poured out on the Son of God. The first thing I want you to think about is the rejection. What's it feel like to be rejected? How embarrassing is it when you get openly rejected? What's it feel like when you get fired from a job? What's it feel like when you get rejected by a group of friends or a boyfriend or girlfriend or even a spouse? How humiliating. What would it be like to be rejected by everybody at the same time? This is what happened to Jesus. Jesus is rejected by everybody. Isaiah said it would happen. 700 years before it happened, he was despised and rejected by men, by mankind. He was rejected by the Romans. Pilate could have rescued him. He was in his power. He admittedly said, I, I find no fault in this man. But Pilate cared more about himself, about his job. And so he just washed his hands and delivered him over to be crucified, which is not really a surprise. Probably hard to find a Roman who would care less about some Jew from Nazareth. He's rejected by the Romans, but he's also rejected by his own people. The Messiah was rejected by Israel. How many days was it? Five? Five days earlier, what did we hear? What did we hear in Jerusalem? Hosanna to the son of David. Here he comes. The triumphal entry, we call it. Christ has come. Hosanna to the son of David. And now what do we hear? Crucify him. From Hosanna to crucify him in less than a week. Man, that's like getting elected president on Sunday. And by Friday, you're, you're, you're impeached for treason and hung on a tree. Utter rejection. He came to his own and his own Received him not. Ryan said it last week. There was no friend on Jesus' side. How humiliating is that? David wrote about it a thousand years earlier. Psalm 69. I've I've become a stranger to my brothers. An alien to my mother's sons. Rejected by his own people. People. And his followers. Here's the good shepherd. Deserted by his entire flock. Remember the ministry of Jesus? We read about all through Matthew. Crowds everywhere. Where are the followers now? Where's the 70? Where's the 12? Gone. Scattered. Every last one of them. Just like Zechariah said 500 years earlier, strike the shepherd, sheep are gone. Rejected by the Romans, rejected by the Jews, deserted by his followers, and we'll see next week. Deserted, forsaken by his heavenly father. Jesus was rejected by everybody. Like David said, there's none to help The shame of utter universal rejection. And it was public. I just want you to think about how public all this was. was, Man, it's one thing to be over here in private and get humiliated, but man, come up here. Let's make fun of you up here. In front of everybody. What does that feel like? And again, this is part of the design of crucifixion, and Jesus experienced this on a massive, grand scale. Just like he's rejected by everybody, he is humiliated by everybody. And again, another psalm by David said this was going to happen. He grouped everybody in these four categories. he got the Gentiles, the peoples, the kings, and the rulers, and here they are all at the cross, this intentional, cruel humiliation coming from every angle. You got hundreds of Gentile soldiers ridiculing him as some fake king. You got the Roman governor, Pilate, parades Jesus in front of the Jews, dressed up like this fake king. We see that in John. King Herod, too, dresses him up and mocks him in Luke. And you got the people in Jerusalem walking by on the main road wagging their heads in disgust. Some of them even stop and rail against a man being crucified. And there comes the whole pompous religious establishment. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocking him at the trial and mocking him at the cross. Even the robbers hanging there beside him, suffering the same fate. They revile him in the same way. Man, it's hard to wrap your mind around just how widespread from top to bottom this disgust aimed at Jesus really was. And for all to see. He's humiliated by everybody, and he's humiliated in front of everybody. That mockery by Pilate and the swap for Barabbas and the cries to crucify him, that took place in front of a big mob. Herod ridiculing him in front of the whole palace. And now look here in verse 27. It says, they gathered the whole battalion before him. Man, that could be up to 600 men. 600 soldiers who strip him down naked and dress him like some sort of fake Caesar. And they spit on him and pretend to worship him. Man, everybody in town gets a... Glimpse of this. Everybody in town gets a chance to witness this. He, he walks through the streets of Jerusalem like a condemned man, too beaten down to c- carry even his own cross. You got the whole band of soldiers that crucify him. They stand there and just watch the whole thing unfold. And you've got this sign above his head. He's on the re- main road coming into Jerusalem. For all to see in his sign above his head, written in three languages, all the languages everybody spoke. Make sure everybody gets a glimpse of this right here. And the religious establishment said they're gloating out loud over his demise. And this humiliation is happening not just in front of those who hate him, but even in front of some that, that love him. Imagine that humiliation. Can you imagine Jesus locked eyes with his mother from the cross amidst all this? This humiliation is about as widespread as you can get without TV or internet, and it was vicious. It took Two different forms of humiliation took place. There's this physical humiliation and then there's this verbal humiliation. And I just want you to remember that we're focusing on the shame, not the pain. Not the physical suffering. So when we point out what happened to him physically. I want you to think about the intentional cruelty, the shame here. He was beaten. Jesus was beaten repeatedly. Man, what would that be like? Come up here, and let's take a couple of wax at you, and you can't do or say anything about it. What would that feel like? Jesus was physically assaulted at least five times in just a few hours before his crucifixion. Man, what would it be like to be slapped in the mouth and said, shut up, in front of the Jewish council? Or to get stripped down and whipped with a cat of nine tails in front of everybody? Or to have a whole battalion of soldiers whack you over the head and spit in your face again And again, there ain't a thing you can do about it. Man, what's it like to have somebody spit in your face? What's it like if they lined up to spit in your face? Jesus was spit on repeatedly in the Sanhedrin it says, they spit in his face plural. Here, the whole this whole battalion, it says they spit on him. Can you imagine how crude a Roman soldier might be in that day? You imagine how they might want to treat this subhuman Jew How they might try to outdo one another when they spit on Him. How disgusting and humiliating is this? This is God in the flesh. God is standing in front of His own creatures. They're blasting Him. He said not a word. spit on and stripped naked what's that like how embarrassing it would it be to stand up here naked but i want you to notice this i guess it's more than that jesus did not undress he was stripped 3 times in front of everybody like, think about the humiliation of being stripped down naked, in public against your will for the very purpose of maximizing your humiliation. And as a Jew, man, this is the very pinnacle or the very pinnacle of shame. Because they believe Genesis, that after the fall, man, any being seen naked is shameful. It happened three times to Jesus in front of two sets of crowds. You see here in verse 28, it says the Roman soldiers stripped him. Stripped him naked and put on a scarlet robe. And then in verse 31, they stripped him again. When they got done mocking him, when it wasn't fun anymore, they stripped him of the robe they had put on him, put on his own clothes, and then led him out to be crucified. Now this is probably more an act of politics rather than mercy. Just a kind of a way of keeping the peace by not parading a naked Jew throughout the streets of Jerusalem. But once they got outside, once they get to the cross, this is custom now to crucify the criminal naked. You see this is implied in verse 35. They they, they strip him again for the third time and they nail him to the cross and they cast lots for his clothes and John's gospel tells me they even cast lots for his tunic that's, a, that's his underwear and this is, this is a perk This is sort of like a bonus of being a Roman soldier if you got crucifixion duty you knew you were going to get a new set of clothes so more than likely this is Jesus totally naked and exposed as he died on the cross. Now, compound that with with just all these people watching you die like that, drawn out over a course of hours as you hang there, beaten to a pulp and naked. Just a spectacle. And that's what I want you to get. Like, this is a a spectacle. They made Jesus out to be a spectacle from beginning to end. Dressing him up like the fake Caesar. Making fun of him with fake worship. Pirate, I mean, excuse me, Pilate parading him around in front of the Jews. Just an entertainment for Herod and his court. This walk of shame. And finally, high and lifted up. It's just a spectacle everywhere he went. And there at the end, hanging on the cross above his head, is this sign. This, LOL, is the King of the Jews. Look at him. Just look at him. And just like everybody gets in on this physical humiliation, everybody also gets a little shot, a little verbal shot. And every time, it's aimed at hurting him, at humiliating him. Don't we do that? Don't we hurt people with it? The tongue is a wicked, powerful thing sometimes. How many times have we said something intentionally designed to hurt somebody's feelings? And it's amazing how quick we can think of it. How quick we can come up with, bam, that, that arrow. And what is it usually aimed at? Somebody's identity. Their identity. If you call yourself a good husband, do a husband act like that? You think you're an artist? That's the ugliest picture I have ever seen. You think you're smart? That's the dumbest idea. Y'all see, this is the dumbest idea I've ever seen. And it's all the more effective when it's in the moment of failure. This is who you say you are. This is who you think you are. Look at you now, huh? In other words, kick them while they're down. That's what we like to do. This smirky, gloating verbalization that says y'all just look at him now. Man, this is on display in spectacular fashion with Jesus. At the Jewish council, remember the trial? What did all the people claim about Jesus when he come, came riding into town on that donkey? You get that Hosanna, Son of God, that messianic Proclamation! This is the Christ, and people in town were saying, "Like, who is this? Who is this? This is the prophet, Jesus." How did the religious leaders mock him when when he was down? Now said he deserves death, and they spit in his face, and they struck him, and they slapped him, and they said, "Prophesy to us, Christ! You're a prophet, huh?" Messiah, huh? Bam! Prophesy to us, Christ. And the Romans, Pilate's soldiers get a hold of this piece of trash from Nazareth who thinks he's king or something. And what do they do? They dress him up like Caesar. They drape a cheap military robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Put a pretend scepter in his Head, hand, and they fall down and pretend to worship him like he's Caesar. And instead of greeting him with a kiss, they spit on him. Instead of him wielding the scepter, they jerk it out of his hand and whack him upside the head. Hail, king of the Jews. This guy thinks he's king. Look at him now. Herod did the same thing mocked him with contempt, even dressed him up. This is in the account by Luke. Pilate sent him over here saying, this guy thinks he's the king of the Jews. Herod says, I'll show him a thing or two. Dress him up like king, send him back. Look at him now. And that sign that Pilate wrote in three different languages. You know what Pilate's sign's really saying? This Jesus, this is Jesus. This is not the king of the Jews. Just look at him. Just look at him. Hey, Israel, behold your king. Don't forget Caesar rules. Not this guy. And everybody coming by, everybody walking by, they reviled him. Remember how Jesus had come into town? He came into the, t- the temple. He flipped the tables in the temple. He preached about the destruction of Jerusalem and the desecration of the temple. He said not one stone would be left on another. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Whose side are you on, Jesus? That's what they mean in verse 39. It says, Those who passed by derided him Wagging their heads saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from that cross. You claim to be the son that God had promised David, well, no son of God would destroy the temple. Whose side are your own? We'll take some Barabbas, please. At least he knows who our enemies are. Look at this traitor. Getting just what he deserves. Cursed by God. And the religious leaders are scoffing and gloating. This guy here doing all the miracles, acting like some sort of savior, turning all the people against us. Look at him. He saved others, it says in verse 42. Look at him now. He saved others. He can't save himself. What kind of savior is this? Rolling in the town, claiming to be the Messiah, challenging our authority, in the temple, embarrassing us in public, pronouncing curses and woes on us. Who does he think he is? Well, that's over. Look at him now. He's the king of Israel? Okay. Let him come down from the cross. Then we will believe in him, verse 42. He claims to be the son of God. How do you end up hanging on a tree? 43, verse 43, you trust in God, then let God deliver him now, if God desires him. They're quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is coming out of their mouth. But they don't believe for one second that God is going to deliver him. They're thinking, no, he's not the Son of God, he's, he's of the devil. He's cursed by God. Just look at him. And the two thieves are doing the same thing. But not a word from his Father in heaven. Lots of words, but not a word from heaven. And We'll see that Jesus, they quote Psalm 22... And he quotes Psalm 22 back again at them. We'll see that next week. And we'll get a sort of a glimpse maybe into his heart. And we'll get a sense that all these vile words of mockery from men didn't nearly affect him like the silence from heaven. Because Psalm 22 says, you're familiar with the first line, but it says, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day. But you do not answer. Who could bear all this? Who, Who could bear all this? Who could bear all this shame and humiliation? Who could handle this sort of Heartbreak. And don't let the fact that Jesus actually endured it all, the cross and all its shame, don't don't let it escape you that this did really affect him. It didn't deter him. But note that this was the very capstone of the man of sorrows. Isaiah says he experienced anguish in him soul. This, in his soul. This is part of it. Here, Psalm sixty nine says it explicitly that the reproaches that he's receiving broke his heart. Psalm sixty nine says he's crying out to God. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Repro- reproaches have broken my heart. I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. I looked for comforters, but I have found none. None. There was no pity, only humiliation. There was no comfort only reviling. Never was there anyone more pressed in this vice of humiliation. The Son of God, the God man, rejected by humil- humanity and forsaken by his Father in heaven, and his heart was devastated. In Psalm 22, it says, My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Now there's one other factor that's, that's just magnifying it all, and that's this, the hatred behind it and the unbelief that's behind all this humiliation. I mean, there's no doubt that Jerusalem is full now. It's just boiling over with this hatred directed at the Son of God. Just like Psalm 69 said, more in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. And none of them believe. None of them believe. And and this mockery shows that they don't believe. This mockery of his identity. And and the religious leaders even flat out admitted in verse 42, let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him because we don't right now. We don't believe He is the Christ. We do not believe He is the Son of God. And I want you to note this that, this, that all this hatred and unbelief that's directed in full force at Jesus Christ is actually a reflection of their hatred and unbelief toward God Himself. And again, Psalm 69 says this straight up. Messiah is praying, O God of Israel, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered me. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Forget the weight of this right here the reproach for god has fallen on christ and i want you to realize that even underneath all that it's ultimately demonic it's demonic you remember way back in chapter 4 in matthew chapter 4 when what was satan's tactic when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. What was that opening line the devil had there? If you are the son of God, command these stones to be bred. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down off the temple. And what was the devil trying to get Jesus to do? To obtain the kingdom and to obtain the glory but skip the suffering. What you're witnessing right here is the devil's last ditch effort to sabotage the cross. Listen to the hiss in this humiliation in verse 40. If you are the Son of God, come down. If you are the King of Israel, come down from that cross. Come down from that cross. This is where we need to be warned. It's where we need to be warned about this hatred and unbelief and how many different ways that it can manifest itself. Every sermon you listen to on this passage rightly reminds us that these mockers are us. That we would be, don't be prideful, you would be right here in some form or fashion manifesting this innate hatred for God and this innate unbelief for Christ. Apart from the powerful grace of God, we would be right here among the scoffers. We sing a song. I hope we're going to sing this song that admits this. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers so which one of these people are you either right now one of these people portray who you are or this is who you were which one be more like the the disinterested passerby how many people walk by on this road and could really care less about this man on the cross is that you could really care less about this man Or maybe you're like the zealots who didn't like this Jesus who threatened their religion. Or maybe you're more like the soldiers who thought all this Jesus Jesus worship was stupid. Or just like the ones who just wagged their heads at the cross. Or or like Herod who just wanted to see a miracle. Or Pilate who, who, who knew there was something special about this Jesus but he didn't quite want to give up what he had. Or are you more like the religious religious leaders who are self-righteous? They don't need a savior. They're pretty good. Or they're self-autonomous. I'm the captain of my own destiny. No need to bow down to this Christ. Or maybe you're even like one of the disciples. You followed Jesus for a little while, but you hadn't been around in a long time. Whether they describe you now or in the past, there is one thing we all have in common, including the ones that are humiliating Jesus on this day, is that the devil has succeeded in his greatest work, and that is keeping us from seeing the glory of Christ. That's the only way you end up in all of those different places, is you don't see the glory of Christ. Let me ask you this. Do you see the glory of Christ in this passage? Do you see any glory here? In the most shame-filled moment in the history of the world, how could there be glory here? Well, quite frankly, that's the most important thing I want you to see. The glory and the shame. glory in the endurance of Jesus Christ in the providence of God bringing this to pass and in the irony of these humiliations. Man, if you consider the magnitude of what's happening in these hours you've got to ask how in the world did Jesus endure all that? Why in the world did Jesus endure all that? Well, one reason is Jesus endured the shame to display the glory. He endured the shame to display de- display the glory of God. Remember, remember who this is that we're talking about, that Jesus is God. This is the one who is higher than the heavens. This is the one who dwells in inapproachable light, who had created all things, and sustains all things by the word of his power. Now what makes that reality all the more staggering is that here is God Almighty being pummeled and humiliated and spit upon by his own creatures And he doesn't do anything. That very first guy that slapped him in the mouth, what would you do? What could the Son of God do in that moment? He could have ripped this guy to shreds one molecule at a time and put him back together and do it again for all of eternity. But he didn't. He didn't. Why? How? Look, this moment in history, I believe is a living, breathing picture of the glory and the goodness of Yahweh in the man Christ Jesus. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at him now. Behold your God. What a literal and magnificent display of the divine forbearance of God Almighty, the glory of God in the disfigured and spit upon face of Jesus Christ. He endured the shame to display the glory of God. And he endured the shame for the joy set before him. The writer of Hebrews says this explicitly, that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. How? Why? For the joy that was set before him. In other words, the shame, as great as it was, was not worth comparing to the joy that was set before him. What was that? What was that joy? that helped Jesus, enabled him to endure. One was he, the, the, the uh, joy of returning gloriously to his Father. The, the writer of Hebrews says this explicitly in the passage. He endured the cross, despising the shame for that joy, and is right now seated at the right hand of God. And so, brothers and sisters, what's more important? What is worth more? The shame on earth Or the glory of heaven? What's worth more? The favor of men? Or the right hand presence of his father? The son of God endured the shame of the cross. And is right now exalted at the right hand of his father. In other words, that prayer in John 17 right before he endures all this has actually been answered in full. Right before this happened, Jesus prays, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Everlasting glory and pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. That psalm that Jesus trusted in so much about resurrection. Psalm 16, the end of it says, You made known to me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of what? Joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is how... He endured. He suffered the momentary light humiliation for the eternal weight of glory. And we should too. And we can. You know why? Because we got the same hope. You know why? Because Jesus endured the same for that other joy. For the salvation of his people. This is why he endured it. This is why Christ came into the world to save people from their sins. To save his people from their sins. And this also was that joy set before him. And this is also another one of those prayers in John 17. Right before this happens, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's the joy set before him. And he had to do something to get us there, he had to do something. To get us there, he had to not come down from that cross. And we are going to be there because Jesus has taken away the curse and he has taken away the shame of our sin. His temporary curse has become our eternal blessing. Hanging on that tree, they called him a curse, and he was. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Our glorious King wears a crown of thorns because the curse of our sin fell on Him, on His head, not ours. And his shame, all of this shame, means our glory. Romans 10 says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Why? Because he already has been. And you know what? In the midst, at the height of this excruciating humiliation, that joy was still set before him. And as he's enduring, he actually... is, is even at work in bringing it to pass because what's he doing in the midst of that humiliation he says Father forgive them for they know not what they do and do you know what happened and I mean in the very same moment, one of those thieves beside him said, Hey, Jesus, remember me. The one that was reviling him says, All of a sudden, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And one of those centurions down there watching him said, Truly, this is the Son of God. And about 50 days later, when Peter is preaching, as the Holy Spirit is being poured out from Jesus Christ, what happens? 3,000 of these people are cut to the heart and they say, What must I do to be saved? See the glory in that. See the glory in the enduring, the shame for the joy set before him. And see the glory in the providence of the shame. And I don't have time to talk about this, but I hope you have gotten a glimpse already of all the Old Testament passages that are being pulled together in just this one little place. And I just want you to realize that God is the one who foreordained it all and then he sovereignly orchestrated it all to get to this very moment. And there's something extremely glorifying about that. It's not just to give a prophecy and it's even not just to fulfill a prophecy, but it's to make everything, it's to pull every lever and every molecule to make it happen over a course of a thousand years to the very moment. And you've got these people in this scene that are fulfilling scripture And saying things, and they don't even know it. The law about being cursed was spoken and written a thousand years before the Romans even invented this junk. Psalm of David, thousand years. Psalm 69, casting of lots. Mixed, uh, wine mixed with like all these things. People wagging their heads. It's, this is all, it's all written. It's all written. And they even are literally quoting the scripture. And they don't even realize it. They're mocking Jesus with Psalm 22, and then Jesus quotes back to them Psalm 22, and they don't even get it. God said, and it was so. Every bit of it. God said, and it was so, remember that. But please see this. Please see this. This is last, but certainly not least. The glory and the irony of the shame. God in his providence has got Jesus' mockers doing and saying things from their wicked hearts even that they absolutely don't believe, but the things are absolutely true. The very things that they're aiming at Christ to to hurt him, to hurt his feelings are actually his greatest glory. They reviled him saying, you who would destroy the temple. Jesus is the temple. He is the dwelling place of God. He is the builder of God's house. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is literally the dwelling place of God. He is the temple and they misquote him. They're quoting him about threatening to destroy the temple, but he actually tells them that when you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up on the third day. And it was so. It was so. He did save himself. He did save himself. They crucified him in shame, but he was resurrected in glory three days later. Jesus is the temple and the temple builder. He is the place of propitiation, the only place you can find atonement for your sin. And he is the cornerstone and the builder of God's spiritual house from the right hand of the Father on high right now. And they didn't believe a bit of it, but they said it. They preached the glory of Christ and didn't know it. They also said he saved others. He cannot save himself. But man, you need to get this. It's it's not that he couldn't save himself. It's that he would not save himself. Jesus is the Savior precisely because he wouldn't save himself. They said, come down from the cross and we'll believe. If he would have come down from the cross, we would still all be in our sin. He stayed there because he loved me and gave himself up for me. The song we love to sing, I hope we sing it in a minute. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Two times they mocked Him as the Son of God. They mocked the faith that He had in God. They mocked the favor that He had with God. They mocked the the fact that God would not deliver Him from the cross. And they were so ironically wrong. Because Jesus is the Son of God. The faithful one. The beloved one. And the one who was delivered on the third day. Nothing had changed since Matthew 3. Nothing had changed when He said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And God did deliver him, not from the cross, but from death. And Peter will soon point his finger at many of them and say, you are the ones who crucified him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. But guess what? God raised him up. You didn't think he could be delivered by God. He is from the dead. And the last... The the, the thing that they all hated the most. The thing every human hates the most. The thing that every one of us will say in our unregenerate hearts. We will not have this man reign over us. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And they mocked him as king. And then when they thought they had finally thrown off the reign of Jesus Christ... They laughed and said, oh, hell, king of the Jews. But you know what God did? He laughed right back. He who sits in the heavens laughs. You know why? You know why God laughed? Because whether you like it or not, Jesus is king. God says, as for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. Because Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the king who died to save his people. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, man, nothing could be more true. The the glory of a king is measured by the multitude of his people. Well, guess what? This king was deserted and forsaken. Glorious kings, they die noble deaths. This king was mocked and slaughtered like a lamb. Normally, loyal subjects are the ones who die for their king. This king died for his people. And it wasn't because they were loyal. It was because they were sinners. Rebels. Jesus, right here, proved the name that they gave him at birth. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, And my king would die for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are in awe at what you did. And in shock of what you had to endure for us. This, Lord, is what we deserve, not what you deserve. What a king. What a king it is. Who would step in front. Lord, you are our shield. Who would step in front of all this curse and shame and wrath and bear our sins in your body that we might be saved and that we might have joy in your presence at your right hand forevermore. We praise your holy name. Build up your church. Amen.